Time to Shift is a podcast that aims to inform on energy and climate-related affairs with the intent to contribute to a low-carbon economy. My name is Sunny. And I'm Christina. We're both shifters. I'm from Australia and Sunny is from Finland. We thought we'd share this episode with you together, as it really does concern everyone wherever we are in the world. In this episode, we're going to guide you through the IPCC's report on the impacts, vulnerabilities and adaptations to climate change. In a nutshell, the report is an urgent warning about how the various consequences of climate change will make living conditions and quality of life much more difficult for billions of people around the world. Basically, what the report says is that at today's speed, we're heading headfirst into a future that most likely will see more droughts, floods and famines, as the average temperature on Earth rises to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is where climate adaptation becomes relevant. It's not only a proactive measure to minimize the damage done by climate change in the short term, but also a long-term survival strategy for a world facing a constantly changing and harsher climate. So what are the major impacts? How will ecosystems change? And what can we do to prevent this? We'll try to answer these questions and many more during today's episode. So let's go. Take it away, Sunny, with a quick reality check. The summer of 2022 gave us an unwanted glimpse into the crystal ball of where our climate is heading. Already by mid-July, Europe was plunged into its second heat wave of the season, with temperatures reaching over 40 degrees all over the continent. In the course of a few weeks, the exceptionally dry and warm weather provoked huge wildfires in Spain, Portugal and France. People were evacuated from their homes, farmers lost their harvests, and once again, the evening news showed us empty, black landscapes of forests burned to the ground. It was a summer that reminded us that climate change comes with a rising death toll. Several thousands of Europeans were reported by the authorities to have died due to the heatwave, mostly affecting the elderly and those with pre-existing health conditions. In Italy, the extreme heat even led to the tragic collapse of the Marmoleda Glacier that cost 10 people their lives in a huge crash of snow and ice. And still, those thinking that Europe was at the front line of the climate crisis quickly changed their minds when the first pictures came in from the catastrophic floods in Pakistan. Being compared to a monsoon on steroids, the devastating floods literally put one-third of the country underwater and displaced over 33 million people. What was particularly shocking is that this happened only a few months after the country had suffered deadly heat waves of over 50 degrees. What do you think about all of this, Christina? Well, actually, Sunny, this is all quite overwhelming, especially as the list goes on and on with plenty of similar examples from all continents. If we just focus on Europe, what are we supposed to think about this hottest summer ever recorded? While we can say that this year's heatwave was definitely extreme, it unfortunately can no longer be classified as an unlikely weather phenomenon for the future, and so neither can its impacts. This is something that climate scientists have been saying for a long time. The consequences of climate change on humanity are not a concern for the future. They are already happening right here, right now. This is why we decided to dedicate this episode to the IPCC's second assessment report that was published in February 2022 under the title Impacts, Adaptations and Vulnerability. 
For those who need an extra reminder of what this global scientific body does and how it works, we recommend you to visit our previous episodes, number four and six. Here's what we'll cover in today's episode. First, how people and ecosystems are diversely vulnerable to climate change. Second, what the exact impacts will be on biodiversity, water, food supply, and human health. Third, we will finish by looking at what role adaptation measures can play to improve our resilience. All right, let's begin by discussing the concept of climate vulnerability, which essentially describes the tendency of someone or something being negatively impacted by climate change. I'm sure you have those horrifying examples from the introduction still fresh in your mind, so no need to repeat that. But what we need to keep in mind is that while we can say that these extreme weather phenomena will increase in tendency on average, it does not mean that we will all be equally affected. The IPCC is actually very clear in highlighting that climate vulnerability is distributed highly unequally and that, in fact, it is often the communities and ecosystems that are the least able to cope that are affected the most. This fundamental inequality of climate vulnerability is easy to observe in our societies, also here in Europe. For example, someone who lives in a suburban neighborhood with access to a swimming pool in their garden and who works from an air-conditioned office will not suffer from heat stress the same way as someone working outside on a construction site in the crowded inner city. The IPCC insists on the fact that there is a range of vulnerabilities that exist between and within countries. To visualize this, the IPCC created a map based on nine indicators, including access to healthcare, access to water and electricity, and food security. The world map is colored in shades ranging from light yellow to dark red. The more intense the color, the more vulnerable the inhabitants are. Just a quick look at how the colors are distributed across the map allows us to draw one immediate conclusion. The global north, mostly colored in a soft, mustard yellow, are for the most parts not yet critically vulnerable to climate change. The global south, on the other hand, especially along the lines of the equator and the tropical areas in Africa and Asia, are covered in bright red, showing a very high level of vulnerability. Approximately three and a half billion people live in highly vulnerable to climate change areas, like indigenous peoples and island communities. For those wanting the full visual experience, you can have a look at the map in the episode description. The root causes of these vulnerabilities are often related to low levels of economic governance. For example, weak public policy fails to limit over-exploitation of agricultural land, which in turn leads to food insecurity and vulnerability. Did you know that between 2010 and 2020, human mortality from floods, droughts and storms was 15 times higher in highly vulnerable regions compared to regions with very low vulnerability? In this second part of the episode, we will now turn our attention towards the effects of climate change hazards on things like biodiversity, water, food supply and human health. Before we get into details, it's important to remember that there is not only one possible outcome. Exact predictions are not possible, mostly because these scenarios all depend on how quickly we manage to reduce CO2 emissions and limit temperature increase in the future. 
So let's begin with biodiversity, since it's a good indicator for how general living conditions will evolve. According to the IPCC, if we manage to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, the loss of biodiversity would remain below 25%. This might seem like a lot, but it's pretty much the best case scenario at this point. On the other end of the spectrum, the IPCC estimates that a 4 degree global warming could result in a biodiversity loss of up to 75% in some parts of the world. Visually, if we look at the 4 degree scenario map, the entire world is covered in 50 shades of purple, meaning there will be virtually no region left untouched. The second thing that jumps to the eye is a dark purple stripe along the equator. This represents the tropical belt and shows the highest results with up to 80% of species being impacted by dangerous climate conditions. You can find the map in the document linked to the description of this episode. Before we move on, let's highlight two important additions. First, with every additional increment of global warming, more diversity will be lost. And second, the severity of risks is not proportional to the level of global warming. What this means is that a temperature rise of 4 degrees is not twice as bad as a 2 degree warming, but will actually cause significantly more than twice the damage. A good way to remember this effect is to think of how your body manages temperature increase. At 40 degrees, you have a bad fever. At 42 degrees, you're dead. And between those two, every fraction of a degree counts. The IPCC looked more specifically at resources that are necessary for human life. Now, be aware that we're not talking about fancy electronic gadgets to improve your smartphone or your Tesla. Nuh-uh. What counts in these contexts are truly the bare necessities of life, like our friend Baloo from The Jungle Book was singing. So in other words, we're talking about food and water here. So let's start with water. The IPCC predicts that we will likely be experiencing increased water shortages and heavy flooding. To understand how these seemingly paradoxical things can happen at the same time, we need to remember that glaciers are important freshwater resources for many regions in the world. This means that if snowfall decreases because the weather gets warmer, the glaciers and the fresh water they provide through lakes and rivers will eventually grow smaller. If this goes on for a long time, it could potentially endanger the drinking water supply of entire communities. But as we know, the melting of glaciers can also trigger catastrophic floods. Listen in on this news report by Sky News from the 2nd of September this year, explaining the triggering factors behind the devastating floods in Pakistan. The Indus River, which runs through the country from the north in the Himalayas down into the Arabian Sea, is actually prone to flooding in the months of July and August. But this is unprecedented, and one reason why is rising temperatures. Now, Pakistan is home to more than 7,000 glaciers, more than any country in the world outside the North and South Poles. Now, these rising temperatures are causing the glaciers to melt, forming glacial lakes. Around 3,000 have already formed, and officials are warning that 33 of them are close to bursting. A second factor is Pakistan's monsoon season, which started earlier than normal this year. It's been dubbed the monster monsoon. 
This monster is something we have never seen. It typically lasts for one and a half months in July and August, but the intensity, frequency and duration of rain has been changing. This monsoon season is different. This time it's been unrelenting, no break, eight weeks. Monsoon season should have stopped by uh, end of July. Sindh province has had nearly eight times more rain than normal this year and Balochistan province has had five times its normal level. Pakistan is the eighth most vulnerable country in the world to extreme weather and melting glaciers caused by rising temperatures can be attributed to global warming. Thanks, Sunny, for that important news. Now let's turn to food supply. With a harsher and less stable climate, harvests are expected to reduce significantly in both quantity and quality. For a large part of the world's population, the future dinner plate is not only likely to be half empty, but also lacking nutritional diversity. Here are some examples. Fisheries could dwindle because increasing temperatures make the ocean too acidic for shellfish to survive. Food crops could suffer because the arable land is destroyed by sea level rise and could become infertile because of the salty ocean water. And fruit and vegetable production could become difficult as pollinator rates decrease. Basically, what the IPCC is describing in its report is an increase of worldwide malnutrition and even possible famine due to lack of fresh water and nutritious food. And again, let's be crystal clear on the fact that this risk will first and foremost increase for populations that are already in a vulnerable situation. As a last example, let's look at some of the impacts that a hothouse planet will have on human health. According to the socioeconomic pathways modelled by the IPCC, up to two-thirds of the global population will be exposed to a deadly combination of heat and humidity by the end of the century. Yeah, that's right, deadly. This is also known as the wet bulb effect. The way this works is that high levels of humidity prevent the human body from effectively cooling down by sweating because the surrounding air cannot absorb any additional water evaporating from the skin when we sweat. According to the medical journal, The Lancet, even short exposures to more than 35 degrees Celsius with high levels of humidity can lead to fatal heat strokes. While this might be less of a concern for people living on northern latitudes, these extreme combinations could become much more frequent for the equatorial regions, lasting from just a couple of days to even several months every year. If you're curious about your potential survival rates, you can consult the maps linked in the description of this episode. And sorry, Christina, it seems much of northern Australia will be affected by wet bulb temperatures in the future. Oh, man. For the sake of continuing this podcast, though, let's assume my friends and I survive these deadly temperatures. It's unfortunately not the only challenge we will have to tackle, though. The IPCC also speaks about the increasing risk of different and new diseases, such as vector-borne diseases by water contamination. It is therefore not unlikely that what we see today and classify today as tropical diseases like dengue or malaria will soon be reaching European shores, once climate zones start migrating north with the warming climate. 
And finally, deteriorating living conditions will create immense migration waves worldwide as we tend to flee dangerous places. As history teaches us, the risk with such large population movements is that it can provoke violent conflicts and wars, especially if it's simultaneously combined with tensions in the food supply. Since 2008, on average, 20 million people have been internally displaced each year because of weather-related extreme events, with storms and floods being the most common. All of these impacts could also worsen if several hazards occur together, cascading risks. And if we accelerate negative feedback loops like melting the permafrost, this in turn releases more greenhouse gases and reduces our capacity to successfully diffuse the ticking time bomb of climate change. Now that we have made it through the list of existential dreads for the future, let's end this episode by having a look at how our societies are coping with adapting. Because surely... If science is so clearly presenting us the facts, we must be doing something to prepare for it, right? Again, let's start with a short definition. Climate adaptation can be understood as the process of adjusting to the current and future effects of climate change. And finally, some positive news. The IPCC report recognizes a number of important steps of progress in the planning and implementation of adaptation measures. This is largely thanks to the growing awareness of the public demanding more action from politicians and governments to act on climate change. In fact, at least 170 countries do have an adaptation plan. So what does this actually mean? Again, we cannot mention everything, so let's quickly look at some prominent areas. Most adaptation plans include measures that are water-related. It can either be measures that aim at preventing floods, such as warning systems, dikes, or by planting mangrove forests along the coast, or for improving water supply security by implementing new efficient irrigation systems. Another pertinent area is forest adaptation. A lot of countries have started undertaking measures to help their forests adapt to a warmer and drier climate, such as by planting new tree species, adjusting pest control, and improving wildfire management. To give you an example from my home country, Australia, when more than 24 million hectares burned during our devastating black summer bushfire season two years ago, the alarm bell rang. Many adaptation measures are being trialled, especially concerning genetic tree seedling selection for fire-resilient traits. But, and let's not kid ourselves here, you knew there was a big but coming, right? These measures are first of all not necessarily taken by or for the people who will be the most affected. And secondly, they are not happening on a sufficiently large scale. In addition, what is more often the rule than the exception is that measures are reactive rather than proactive. This means measures are often implemented when part of the damage and suffering has already occurred and therefore also becomes less effective. There seems to be only one way out of this. Quickly scale up adaptation measures in the next decade. The only problem is, is that financial resources are far from being equally distributed in the world. Countries who are heavily impacted by extreme weather often have insufficient public budgets to implement adaptation strategies. 
And this is why the developed world in the global north has promised to give financial assistance to poorer countries. A responsibility they have so far largely failed to deliver on. In fact, richer countries have chosen to focus mainly on mitigation measures. Did you know that only 7% of annual global climate finance is for adaptation and the rest is for mitigation? And while it is true that adaptation measures alone will not help us prevent an escalating climate crisis, it will be key for ensuring that our societies not only survive, but can thrive in a future that is rapidly changing. Dear listeners, we have reached the end of this episode, so let's do a quick recap before wrapping up. In the first part, we concluded that climate vulnerability is highly unequally distributed across the world and tends to be higher for those communities who have the least means to adapt. In the second and third part, we looked at examples on how climate change is posing a serious threat to biodiversity, our water and food supply, as well as to our health, which is the reason why countries must start giving adaptation measures much more political attention and financing, since they are our best chance to become more resilient to climate change. Before walking away with our hope all battered, we want to remind you that these gloomy projections are based on our actions today, which remain heavily insufficient. But luckily, as we remain the masters of our own action, there are still plenty of opportunities to change the outcome. So the best thing that you can do after listening to this podcast is to use the information as a wake-up call for climate action and make sure you do your part in preventing the worst impacts from happening. If that's something you feel motivated to do, you can check out our previous episodes where you can learn more about how behavioral change can positively impact the climate, such as changing your consumption of digital goods or using less carbon-intensive energy sources. This podcast was produced by The Shifters, volunteers supporting The Shift Project. The Shift Project is a think tank advocating the shift to a post-carbon economy. Stay tuned for more Shift!